folklore, the beliefs, traditions, and culture of the people. Passed on in the most part through the spoken word, folklore expresses our values, our shared ideas with others. It is both how we were and how we are. Without a record, our customs and traditions may become lost to us in the present, but under the surface, we still draw on them. We still know. It's time to recall our forgotten history and to record the new. This is the Folklore Podcast. Welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Joining me on this episode is Dr Paul Cowdell, a folklorist and fellow committee member of the Folklore Society. Paul studied for an MA in Folklore at the National Centre for English Cultural Tradition at the University of Sheffield, after which he was recruited for fieldwork for the Smithsonian. He subsequently went on to study for a PhD, looking at contemporary belief in ghosts. For this edition of the podcast, we'd like to go back through history, to examine exactly what folklore is, and how it's developed. So Paul, thank you for coming on to the podcast. And to start, can you tell me why folklore seems to be so popular in modern times, and where the term and the subject has come from? Thanks for having me on here. I think that the success of this podcast and the Twitter hashtag Folklore Thursday are a couple of indications of just how widespread interest in folklore is and remains. But it raises all sorts of questions. What do we mean when we say folklore? Do we all mean the same thing? How do we come to make it mean any of those things? Who's the mysterious we in all of those sentences? Does folklore mean the same in popular everyday usage as it does for folklorists? If it doesn't, and... uh, Spoiler alert, it doesn't, always. How do we reconcile its meanings? Assuming we can all agree on what folklore means, how do we go about looking at it? And the answers to a lot of these questions are, if not found, at least pointed towards in the history of the subject. So it's worth looking back at the history of the idea of folklore. In fact, The more people become fascinated by folklore, the more important it is to think about that history, because it shapes how we go forward, how we think about folklore now and in the future, not just in the past. Intellectual history can be quite abstract, but folklore can't. Not really. If it stops being about people, it stops being about anything. So I hope that getting some kind of handle on how we thought about it will actually start to open more doors for people who want to get involved and take it forwards. And I think the key is starting with the word itself. Folklore is marked by a continued critical self-appraisal, which historically has taken the form of consideration both of what we actually study, what folklore is, and of the discipline. The name of our study is a key to how we understand that study. Folklorists can sometimes seem obsessive about the name of the discipline, and internationally we use a variety of words for our activities, folklore, ethnology and so on, which indicates differences in approach and focus, 
When folklorists argue about the scope of our study and its character, I think this reflects folklore's strengths, not weaknesses. And it isn't helped by the fact that, certainly in Britain, we mostly use the same word, folklore, to cover the law itself and the study. And this has been criticised because the word folklore is popularly used to suggest wrongness or distortion. Now, I am quite happy to live with that because it means we constantly have to deal with actual folk usages, folklore in practice. Uh, academically, you will often find the word folkloristics used for the study. I do use that sometimes for clarity's sake. It's not a particularly nice word, though. But folklore, folklore is a lovely word. And also, I think that if we mean folklore, we should say folklore. So let's start with that name, because it arrived with a bang. Um, as uh, the American folklorist Richard Dawson put it, seldom in the history of learning has a new subject announced its arrival so explicitly and with such self-assurance as did folklore. But as I'll explain, it wasn't actually the first time people had looked at the subject. It's just that 170 years ago, we changed how we talk about it. On the 22nd of August, 1846, a short letter dated 10 days earlier was published in the Athenaeum Literary Magazine under the pseudonym Ambrose Merton. It was written by a literary antiquarian named William John Toms and encouraged the magazine's readers to collect and forward for publication items of what we in England designate as popular antiquities or popular literature, such as, quote, manners, customs, observances, superstitions, ballads, proverbs, etc. Unquote. However, Tom's noted, this material is, by the by, more a law than a literature, and would be most aptly described by a good Saxon compound, folklore, the law of the people. So I guess in a sense, folklore gets its origin story, if you like. Absolutely. Even today, this is the convenient entry point for the subject. It's the first time folklorists get to identify themselves as such, and we still acknowledge Tom's for his invention. When the Folklore Society here in Britain was founded in 1878, largely because of his work, Tom's was appointed its first director. His word caught on almost instantly. Inside a year, Tom's was claiming it had achieved household currency, which seems reasonable given the evidence. I mean, later in 1846, he began a folklore column in the Athenaeum, publishing what readers were sending in. In 1849, he took that to a new magazine, Notes and Queries, which does still continue today, although it's now exclusively literary. In 1851, Thomas Sternberg's Dialect and Folklore of Northamptonshire became the first book with the word in its title, suggesting it had taken root pretty quickly. And as you can imagine, Tom's was pretty proud of his word. In 1855, Dean Richard Chenevix Trent, Archbishop, Poet and Philologist, described the word folklore as the most successful of these compounded words borrowed recently from the German. Toms was understandably pleased and flattered, but also keen not to lose credit. The impression that the word was borrowed from the German is a very natural one, he wrote, but it was of English origin. And he came back to this in 1872 in Notes and Queries, again to reassert his claims of originality. But, for all that he was deservedly proud of having come up with the best word ever, and for all that he did point out future directions for the study of folklore, as we'll see, he didn't claim to have invented the field of interest. He was proposing folklore 
as an alternative to phrases already in use, popular antiquities or popular literature. These are recognisable terms that identified the nascent study of folklore with a body of work begun over the preceding couple of centuries and being continued by Tom's own contemporaries. The study of popular antiquities had really kicked in through the 17th century, in part as an attempt to come to terms with changes in popular belief and custom around the tumult of the English Revolution and the Civil War. John Aubrey, for example, who died in 1697, was fascinated by supernatural phenomena and omens, ghost stories and the like, and he amassed an amazing body of anecdotes and legends that read like modern field notes. He also promoted the view that all this old stuff that was known before the Civil War was vanishing as a result of wider literacy and political developments. And he made a comment, The many good books and variety of turns of affairs have put all the old fables out of doors, and the divine art of printing and gunpowder have frighted away Robin Goodfellow and the fairies, unquote. that summarises pretty much what would be the view of folklorists for a long time to come, namely that this is old stuff that's vanishing and we should write it down before it disappears. I'd like to say that that's not quite how folklorists see things these days, but it is a stubborn and ingrained point of view that we really haven't quite shaken off altogether. And this approach of the antiquarians continued through the 18th century. You have uh, people like Francis Gross, who published a dictionary of the vulgar tongue that's full of observations on folklore. And most importantly, a guy called Henry Bourne, who in 1725 published a compilation, Antiquitates Vulgares, common or popular antiquities. This was uh, considerably expanded in 1777 by John Brand as observations on popular antiquities, and then edited again further by Henry Ellis in 1813. Bourne's book, and the books it turned into, became the cornerstone of historical collections of folklore, and it was at the, at the heart of the work of the Emergent Folklore Society over a century later. But the point is, not just that they were somehow pointing to future developments, Bourne, more than anyone, highlights how far Tom's wasn't working in a void, not that he was claiming to, Bourne and Brand's work was used extensively by Toms's contemporary William Hone in books like The Everyday Book and The Yearbook. And Hone had a, a similar sort of write-in contribution policy to Toms. So, for example, you find uh, the poet John Clare sending Hone recollections of Northamptonshire May Day customs. A Woolwich blacksmith sent him uh, an account of a dockyard procession featuring an effigy. It's great stuff. At the same time, Toms was being encouraged by his mentor Francis Douce, the keeper of the manuscripts at the British Museum, to undertake literary research. And Toms's own work included an attempt to make, in his words, the writings of Shakespeare and that folklore which the poet loved mutually illustrative of each other. Now, Toms may have only been hinting at these forebears when he used the term popular antiquities, but his letter was explicit about one influence. He talked about the Athenaeum gathering collectania until some James Grimm shall arise who shall do for the mythology of the British islands the good service which that profound antiquary and philologist has accomplished for the mythology of Germany. Unquote. Indeed, he went on, the present century has scarcely produced a more remarkable book, imperfect as its learned author confesses it to, confesses it to be, than the second edition of the Deutsche Mythologie. Which is important for a lot of reasons, not least that he's talking about a method. 
Um, Grimm's Deutsche Mythologie, wrote Toms, was a, a mass of minute facts, many of which, when separately considered, appear trifling and insignificant, but when taken in connection with the system into which his mastermind has woven them, assume a value that he who first recorded them never dreamed of attributing to them. As with the popular antiquities, Toms is talking about not just collecting this fast declining cultural detritus, often from literary sources, but also what, talking about what you do then, amassing these small customs into a bigger picture with a definite political and cultural aim. And what was that aim? Well, he wanted to produce something national in character, a mythology of the British islands equivalent to the Deutsche Mythologie. In, in 1850, Notes and Queries advertised preparations for immediate publication of a collection entitled The Folklore of England. One object of this work, it declared, is to furnish new contributions to the history of our national folklore. That work never appeared. But the national focus was carried into the first prospectus of the Folklore Society in 1878, which hoped to publish those scattered notes on the popular superstitions, legends and ballads of Great Britain and Ireland, which are almost the only traces of the primitive mythology of these islands. But it did so um, in an international context. The Society's first journal featured articles on French, Italian, Japanese, Native American folklore, and a survey of tales that took in Russian, Sicilian, French and Scottish collections. Toms himself saw British mythology in Scandinavian and Germanic terms. But the, that prospectus mentioned also primitive mythology, which points to a dominant founding idea of the discipline that, that came under considerable theoretical scrutiny throughout the period, that folklore constituted the survival of the primitive into the modern world. Now, I should emphasise that that really, really, really isn't how folklorists see folklore today. But it's worth emphasising, it's worth saying, because you find all sorts of confusion coming up, even today, especially because cheap reprints of out-of-copyright Victorian texts, which are classics of their time, but definitely of their time, are some of the most easily available literature on the subject. A lot of 19th century folklore was research was done in the library, so that rather than finding out what things actually meant for the people who did them, you, you got a rather speculative stringing together of things which were thought to look like each other. Uh, and this reached its height in the 20th century with J.G. Fraser, um, whose work poses problems for folklorists to, today. The Golden Bough is still popular, still available, and I have to say far more people have heard of Fraser than have heard of all the other folklorists who disagreed with him, continue to disagree with him, and have done completely different stuff since. I mean, folklorists don't really do that stuff anymore. But it doesn't stop a first reaction to the word folklore being, ooh, like Fraser. It is our history. Um, it has contributed to our, our discipline's development. But it isn't our present. But it has a place in our history because for most of the pioneering generation of folklorists, folklore was something that survived in rural communities, in the peasant soul, even somewhere like England, which didn't actually have a peasantry anymore. It took a long time for folklorists to acknowledge that there was folklore in the city as well, and not just rural folklore that had survived urban migration. It's only in the last 50, 60 years that folklorists have argued generally that all groups of people, regardless of their origin, status, identity, share some sort of folklore. 
you'll have different folklore at work, within your family, among your school friends, at your hobbies, etc., etc. All of these, all of these things constitute folklore. But I don't want to belittle my theoretical ancestors here. Even though this is only fairly recently established in the discipline, the Victorian folklorists did know it was there as a question. Uh, in 1893, the, the great Australian tale scholar Joseph Jacobs wrote this brilliant article called, just called The Folk. He said there'd been lots of discussion about what the folk believed, what the folk did, but very little indeed, he said, was said as to what the folk was that said and did these things, and nothing at all was said as to how they said and did them. I mean, really, it's one of my favourite articles. Check it out. It's in the. Um, you'll find it online in the archives of the Folklore Society journal. Jacobs was contributing to a debate about the origin of about the origin of items of folklore. Um, did they spring up collectively and anonymously through polygenesis, or were they the creation of an individual, a monogenesis, that then passed into the community? And just as an aside, the uh, American government has actually taken a position on this very debate recently. Um, it supports polygenetic folk origin uh, because that would limit copyright claims on traditional material. But that's an aside. But Joseph Jacobs' central point went way beyond that discussion. You see where I'm pointing, he wrote at one stage. The folk is simply a name for our ignorance. So. Even within a fairly limited contemporary debate, the field was already being opened up for future development of the discipline into what we know it as today. So while we've moved away from that primitivist conception now, the political concerns behind it do highlight an important point about Tom's new word. He'd invented the word, but he did so in the context of a theoretical framework that was already being elaborated across Europe. The concept of primitive survivals offered the possibility of finding some underlying soul and culture of the people. It offered fuel to the notion of an inherent national character. Now, we're familiar with the darker side of this from 20th century history. And it's worth bearing in mind that after the Second World War, folklore had been so discredited in Germany by Nazi abuses of it, that scholars had to rebrand and reframe it entirely. But things looked a little different a century earlier. The appeal, the appeal to an underlying national character could justify the aspiration for a nation where one didn't yet exist. Uh, I mean, Bela Bartok, writing in, in the early 30s about song collection in Hungary, summarised it uh, in, in this way. Anyone who is at all interested in folk song research has certainly heard that in small countries, especially those which have been more or less politically oppressed, uh, they've devoted themselves with exceptional eagerness to the collecting of their folk songs. It was the intention in these countries to invoke national feeling by disclosing and preserving the treasures hidden in the folk song, and to a certain extent, create a counterweight to oppression. And that was even more true of tales and epic poems, which not only offered a cultural treasure, but also allowed for the construction of a national mythology for nations that didn't yet exist, the, for nations in waiting, if you like. I mean, the prime example is Elias Lernroth's merging of disparate collected oral texts into a national mythology in the Kalevala, which provided a cultural heritage for a Finland that was yet to be established, and, and achieved it. 
I mean, as, as the celebration in Finland every 28th of February makes quite clear. And, and the Kalevala is stunning. It's, it's completely readable. And it had a massive impact on the emerging discipline of folklore. In many ways, it came to be the test case for the relationship between ethnography, what people actually do and say, and literary antiquarianism, what we can find in books. It was known from the outset that Lernrot had inventively and creatively edited together a whole load of oral texts. And it was initially argued that the text, that the result, wasn't folkloric at all, that it should be studied purely as literature. Now, it may sound odd, but this actually provided folklore with all sorts of theoretical boosts because it demanded a serious close study of source materials. We now figure that Lernrot probably wrote about 600 lines of poetry as his input to the work, which is actually only around 2% of the total. And we've come to a much more satisfying, satisfyingly complicated appraisal of the text, that one that acknowledges at the same time Lernrot's literary achievements as editor and writer, the oral poetic achievements of the Karelian rune singers whose traditional material Lernrot was shaping, and the folkloric material that's contained within the texts. We should also note, given how national its ambitions were for a country that didn't yet exist, that the Kalevala and the discussion around it were from the very start part of an international debate. While Finnish scholars were largely treating the work as literature rather than folklore, it was an Italian folklorist, uh, Domenico Comparetti, who was busy identifying the traditional religious material in the text. It was Comparetti who, talking about this religious material, described the Kalevala beautifully as an epic of charms. So how important is this international aspect? Oh, it's absolutely essential to the history of folklore, both as a subject and as a discipline. When the, the British folklorist uh, WF, and entomologist W.F. Kirby announced his intention of producing an English version of the Kalevala from a German translation, there was an outcry. Many eminent scholars published stern letters insisting that an English version would only be acceptable if it was translated directly from the original Finnish. Uh, actually, writing about the folklore archives in Finland, the Folklore Society at the time wailed plaintively, we must all learn Finnish! What's striking uh, is that Kirby took note of all of this and treated it seriously enough to learn both Estonian and Finnish and translated the closely related Estonian epic the Kelev Poeg as part of his background materials. Now, of course, there is a slight tension between national aspiration and this international interaction. And the Folklore Society in Britain is justifiably proud of its pioneering place in the field, so much so that for many years it claimed to be the world's first folklore society, society, which was a little embarrassing when you met colleagues from the Finnish Literature Society, which, with its magnificent folklore archives, had been founded in 1831. Um, the, the Folklore Society's claim was eventually amended slightly to being the first society to use the word folklore in its title. There are still some minor doubts about that, too, I have to say, but the Folklore Society still exists and it still retains its international significance, so I think some kind of boast is legitimate. I think the point is that the process I've talked about here, the investigation into folklore even before that's what we called it, was also not national. In 1989, Vilmos Voigt gave a paper provocatively titled 200 years of teaching folklore at a Hungarian university. He admitted right at the beginning that um, 
the word had been invented in 1846 by Toms, but said, even if the term is of a later origin, the phenomenon itself derives from a nobler age. And he pointed to earlier researches to what we now call folk life. I'll come back to that. Because before we get away from the national question entirely, we should note that Lernerot's editorial work towards a national mythology was itself heavily influenced by the Grimm's and the German Romantics. And Jakob Grimm had been an early champion of Lernerot's book. Uh, a lot of the confusion around the word folk, folk comes from its borrowing from the German folk, which doesn't quite mean what the English was intended to mean. Ascendant German Romanticism from the late 18th century onwards saw Volk, uh, people of the soil carrying with them some integral popular soul, as the basis of a Germany which was, at that time, still a cluster of divided federal states. And I think we forget at our peril that big nations go through similar processes of formation and self-identification to small ones, particularly in their emergence. That may well have been a factor in Toms's failure to produce his Folklore of England. The compulsion to produce a nationally identifying body of folklore just wasn't so urgent in the senior part of a nation-state that already existed as it would be in territory that aspired to national status. But for all that Toms's national project didn't materialise, I think you can see it reaching some kind of fruition in the volumes of county folklore that were published by the Folklore Society after 1878. But again, in 1912, when Charlotte Sophia Byrne announced a turn by the Folklore Society towards establishing an authoritative corpus of British folklore, she did so whilst trying to place that corpus in its European context. And again, this is to say nothing of other attendant cultural groups that are less central to an existing nation's self-identity. You think of the significance of the place of folklore in the Celtic twilight, for example. In existing powerful nation-states, we may not find quite the same progressive striving for national expression as in the oppressed small territories Bartok had been talking about, but we awkwardly do find something else. Folklore's attention to the primitive and savage in the modern world meant it could appeal in the imperial nations to the documentary tendencies of colonial administrators and their missionary associates. And this is quite a complicated relationship. Some scholars actually found themselves government posts in order to allow them to pursue their research interests. While some colonial administrators became aware of folklore and became folklorists, insofar as it had impacted on other work they were already doing or had already done. As guy Mansell Longworth Dames, for instance, was a full-time functionary in the Indian Civil Service for nearly 30 years. Early in 1892, he wrote to the Folklore Society about some materials he'd collected on the northwest frontier, frontier of India. Um, I'll quote his letter. He, he wrote, I had not till lately paid much attention to folklore, and the stories I took down in the Balochi language, chiefly from a philological point of view, while completing a handbook of that language for the Punjab government. As it is a language without a written literature, it was necessary to collect my materials direct from the mouths of the people. The result is a collection of stories which have, at any rate, the merit of being recorded exactly in the words in which they were told. End of quote. Now, that's noteworthy because not a lot of folklorists at this point were necessarily doing fieldwork, but let's not whitewash the situation. Dames was also a collector and scholar of Northwest Indian Buddhist art and Oriental coins, which 
underscores the slightly uneasy relationship between scholarship and colonial plunder. But all of that, stories, coins, art, touches on the other main point that arises from Tom's letter, namely, what does folklore cover? What is it? Tom's talked about the manners, customs, observances, superstitions, ballads, proverbs, etc. of the olden time. The Folklore Society was founded with a view to collecting and preserving popular fictions and traditions, legendary ballads, local proverbial sayings, superstitions and old customs. Certainly early folklorists saw it as covering beliefs, customs, stories, songs and sayings. Um, in 1914, Charlotte Byrne, summarising this, wrote that it covers, quote, everything which makes part of the mental equipment of the folk as distinguished from their technical skill, unquote. So it isn't the form of the plough which excites the attention of the folklorist, but the rites practised by the ploughman when putting it into the soil, in her words. But even at the time, that wasn't quite fair. Uh, and we've already seen budding folklorists being just as excited about things as they were about rights to do with things. Um, in 1891, Arta Hazelius had established the Open Air Ethnographic Museum Skansen in Stockholm, uh, exhibiting exactly the sort of material culture Charlotte Byrne was dismissing buildings, furniture, clothes, toys, and so on. Following the same expansion of thinking about who, that we've seen about who has folklore, Hazelius started collecting by collecting peasant culture, but his successors at the museum, which is still there, have moved into urban and bourgeois lifestyles too. This kind of study was called in Swedish folkliv, uh, and eventually and predictably this was anglicised as folklife. There are separate bodies specialising in folklife studies, but folklife has right, finally and rightly come to be seen as part of folklore. And again, that was probably already there in researches before the word. When Vilmos Voigt was talking about 17th century Hungarian folklore research, he said it made sense, it wasn't anachronistic to think about it in those terms, if we understand the term folklore to be equivalent to folk life. And I think it seemed easier, historically, to provide lists of the sort of things folklore covers than to try and define it summarily. Although, I mean, in, in person, I usually talk about bits of informal culture and then just go with wherever the conversation then takes me. And anyway, lists can be misleading. In 1965, the outstanding American folklorist Alan Dundas, he reckoned that an itemised list might be the best way of defining folklore for the beginner, and then went on to give a 24-line sample which he even he had to admit couldn't possibly include everything. One of his colleagues looked at this quite long list and said, oh, so folklore then is just the stuff Alan Dundas studies. And I think the thing is, the flexibility is what makes folklore so difficult to explain to academic funding bodies, for one. Um, as one of my tutors put it, Folklore has all the interesting bits of other disciplines and none of their dull bits. But at it also, and I want to conclude on this very, very exciting point, it, this is also what continues to make folklore relevant 
and viable and fascinating today. Thank you. My thanks to Paul Cowdell for talking to me. A full transcript of Paul's talk is available as usual for download from the website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time. You have been listening to The Folklore Podcast, written and presented by me, Mark Norman. Follow my research at www.facebook.com slash marknormanfolklore. The Folklore Podcast art director is Melissa Martell. Visit her website at www.mdmcreate.com. To listen to other episodes, receive our free newsletter or download the e-magazine supplements for all our episodes, please visit our website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com. You can become a supporter of the podcast for as little as a dollar a month and receive all the magazines, as well as extra episodes, films and more rewards. Visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast to do that. The Folklore Podcast theme music is written and performed by Gerdy Bird. <laughs>